one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago. The Turn of Britain Today is the 2nd of August 2014, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Now what? That was the question on the lips of Kaiser Wilhelm II's advisers, as he went to bed shattered over the news on the night of the 1st of August 1914. Britain would not guarantee French neutrality after all, and Germany would now have to fight the Franco-Russian Entente just as Germany's strategic planners had envisioned since 1894. The scenario was a nightmare, especially with the British lurking suggestively in the background, and despite the fact that Germany had been armed since that time with the Schlieffen plan. So euphoric had the mood been in the Kaiser's late meeting that champagne was had to celebrate the incredible news, when it emerged that Sir Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary for Britain, had managed to somehow confuse what was possible with what was promised, Berlin sighed in resignation. Though its mobilisation was beginning to whirl into gear, as news of the declaration of war reached the front pages of newspapers across Europe and became the talk of its statesmen, the very men that had signed the order and drafted up the declaration now seemed to pause for thought. It was as if, after being so close to war against a single foe, German mood now had to come down from the high and sober up to face reality. But what was the reality? The German ambassador to Russia had been meant to hand the declaration of war to Russia's foreign minister at 5pm. And yet it was now 2am, and still no word had come from St. Petersburg about whether they accepted the state of war or what the Russians thought about it. Certainly, the German Chancellor Bethmann Hollweg expected some kind of reaction, if not a last-minute capitulation to German demands that Russia cease its mobilisation, then at least a reply to note the regrettable current state of affairs. But nothing came. If Germany wasn't at war with Russia, then it surely couldn't be at war with France too, could it? Justifying war against France would be difficult if Russia and Germany were not in a state of war, so perhaps the situation... 
At this, Falkenhayn, the German Minister for War, cut off this train of thought from the German Chancellor, who remained apparently desperate to believe in the maintenance of the peace. The war was there after all, and the question of a declaration of war against France was of no account, the Minister of War said, and he was backed up by the German Chief of Staff Maltke, a man who had been through the most stressful day of his life already, as he almost saw the ruin of his years of hard work in one day amidst the desperate attempts to limit the war. The war was there, and that was that, Maltke said. Bethman remained determined to make sure. He wanted some confirmation under international law before he would behave as a chancellor at war. Maltke grew angry at this. Tirpitz, Germany's naval chief, recalled that there erupted a violent scene followed by mutual apologies for loss of temper. Tempers were running high, and in a way Bethman's insistence on making sure reflects the gravity of the situation. If something, anything, had happened to make Russia not be at war with Germany since the declaration had been sent, and if some kind of climb down had occurred that Germany hadn't yet been apprised of, then Bethmann refused to jeopardise it. Germany's Chancellor would concede that if Russia had indeed fired first, then the case would be clear, since that means the Russians have been the first to start, and I shall have the declaration of war handed over the frontier by the nearest general. Because Bethmann didn't know of the emotional experience of Portelay, the German ambassador, and Sazanov, the Russian foreign minister, that night in the Russian capital, he didn't know what Russia had said to the declaration. He was completely in the dark. Bethmann insisted that war couldn't begin until it was declared, since it had said so in the 1907 Hague Convention. Maltke and Falkenhayn, eager to get going, urged Bethmann to see sense and accept the fact that war was war, whether Russia said it was or not. It only occurred to Tirpitz that the state who declared war first would be judged first, not only by history but also by their contemporaries. Tirpitz couldn't understand why the declaration of war on Russia had been published before German mobilisation. And he could also see no use in launching the declaration of war on France before we actually marched into France. Tirpitz bemoaned the strategy of moving through Belgium to defeat France insisting that this would inflame Britain against the Central Powers, he added that, We must at once reckon war with England. It is now that the Chancellor appeared to be on the verge of cracking. As if his earlier claims that war wasn't actually in play hasn't suggested as much, Bethman greeted the news of the planned attack on the Belgian fortress of Liège with panic and a sense of doom. Considering the well-known measures that Belgium had by now taken to fortify the region around and within Liège, Attacking it seemed like suicide. Maltke insisted that there was no other way, and that the attack would have to take place on M plus 3, in other words, tomorrow. Tirpitz observed that, The reins have slipped completely out of the Imperial Chancellor's hands. Tirpitz surmised from Bethman's reaction that he had, No previous knowledge about the march through Belgium, or had tried to prevent it. In fact, Bethman had only been informed about the planned attack on the now impregnable Belgian fortress the day before having only known about the general plans for a march through Belgian territory before that. Bethman noted with despair that marching through a slice of Belgium was one thing, but that attacking and seizing Belgian lands and forts were another. It would exacerbate the already lingering fears about Britain, and would surely paint Germany as the world enemy to unaware observers. By 4am, Two hours after the meeting was called to an end and Germany's weary statesmen went to bed, word came through about Russian cross-border activities. 
and the decision was made to send a press communique to Wilhelm, to Rome, Vienna, Budapest, and Bucharest to the effect that an actual state of war existed. Now that Bethman could verify that Germany was actually at war with Russia, he requested to be kept informed of the latest diplomatic effort being sent towards a potential ally. This one at Constantinople. As recently as the 22nd of July, the day before Austria was due to deliver its ultimatum to Serbia, the Ottoman War Minister Enver Pasha had proposed an outright military alliance to the German ambassador Hans von Wangenheim. Hans had refused, but Wilhelm had rebuked him for it and urged talks to resume. By Friday the 31st, the two seemed on good enough terms that Hans this time approached the idea with Pasha. He asked whether Turkey was prepared to undertake some action worthy of the name against Russia. When the Russian deadline for ceasing mobilization had expired the next day, on the 1st of August, Bethmann had instructed Hans to pursue an alliance directly so long as Germany's military attaché in Constantinople, the infamous to Russia Lehman von Sanders, declared the Ottoman army battle-ready. The German ambassador was making a request of his own, that Germany send its one Mediterranean dreadnought, SMS Goben, to the Ottoman capital. Hans argued that once it was there it would protect Bulgaria and Turkey itself from Russian landings, as well as protect vital communications. Hans argued also that the presence of such a vessel may force Turkey to enter the war more quickly. At 4pm today did the agreement eventually become set in stone. Hans von Wangenheim signed a secret alliance treaty to last till the end of 1918 with the Ottoman Grand Vizier the terms of which stated that Germany would protect Ottoman lands in return for Turkey's declaration of war against Russia in the event that Russia attacked Germany. Though Bethmann intended it to come into effect instantly, as a kind of coup to demonstrate to Russia the extent of her mistake, almost hilariously did the Grand Vizier trick Germany into making the very terms of the treaty null and void. As the terms of the treaty suggested, it would only come into effect if Russia attacked Germany. Yet Germany had declared war on Russia, and not only that, but she had done so the day before the treaty was signed. These facts were to enable the Ottomans to delay their entry into the war, much to the immense protest of Germany. Bethmann was assured by Maltka that the situation was thus far more favourable than he could have expected. Even without British neutrality, at the very least there would be additional pressure on Russia's borders. Faced as St. Petersburg now was, with its eternal enemy of the previous three centuries, though this time for the last time. It was the last time the Russian and Ottoman empires would fight each other, not because of any great exercise on the part of either, but because by the end of the war, neither empire would remain in existence. Maltka asked that Bethman continued to work on Romania, Italy and Bulgaria though, all of whom had defensive alliances with Germany that had now been fractured by Berlin's hideous insistence to stick to the rules of war. Bethmann did not know yet that Italy had wired its own exit from the conflict to Paris and London through its relevant ambassadors, though the news would soon come. Vienna was another ordeal. Austria-Hungary's chief of staff, Konrad von Hotzendorf, had to be persuaded to turn his forces away from Belgrade and send them against Russia. To deviate from the war plans of before that stipulated war against Serbia alone, and to embark on a two front war that had previously been declared hazardous. It was Conrad himself who had said that in the event of a two front war breaking out while Austria attacked Serbia, Austria would perhaps be better not to mobilise at all. 
In this case, he was referring to Italy, but the sentiments remained. Berlin was now asking a lot from its sole ally, but it had no other choice. The Russian steamroller was coming. As the Allies seeking endured for Berlin, its invasion of Luxembourg was underway. At 8am this morning, the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, Paul Etchen, wired a letter of formal protest to Berlin at the impolite occupation of his tiny European duchy. Berlin then wired a series of telegrams of its own to London, The Hague and Paris, explaining that the action was a precautionary measure to secure the railways under our management from French attack. In a way this was true, but Berlin did not add why securing such railways were of such importance to her. It was of course because Luxembourg was the pit stop before the invasion of Belgium, which would then pave the way for the invasion of northern France. It was the script of the Schlieffen plan, and Moltke was ensuring that Germany stuck to it ardently, despite the previous night's hesitations. There now began the battle for Britain. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com opinion between the central powers and the Entente, with the former pleading necessity as the reason for its actions, and the latter claiming that Britain's involvement was now a necessity. Paul Cambon, the French ambassador to Britain, was having a difficult time doing his part for the Entente though. In a meeting with Gray in which Cambon revealed the extent of the German occupation of Luxembourg, Gray upheld that the integrity of it was guaranteed, collectively, by the powers in 1867, whereas Belgium was guaranteed severally and individually by Britain and others in the 1839 treaty. 
Kanban could fail to see the difference, and indeed there was little bar the tone of language used to compose both treaties, and of course the feeling that the invasion of one state evoked as opposed to the other. Cambon, having been on something of a panicked ride to ensure British intervention over the previous week, was beyond unimpressed. Leaving Gray's presence and having a conversation with the foreign affairs editor of the London Times, Cambon noted scathingly, I do not know whether this evening the word honour will not have to be struck out of the English vocabulary. The debating in the British cabinet was just as terse. Meeting on a Sunday morning, which was unheard of in British political life, Gray had to awkwardly balance the two competing ideologies of intervention and non-intervention within his own government. As well as remain wary of the Conservative Party, who were in opposition, and their increasingly pro-interventionist stance, on the basis mostly of Belgian integrity and the honouring of agreements to protect France. Both of these concerns, as it turned out, were how Gray planned on flipping his cabinet towards some kind of intervention. He planned on appealing to the governmental sympathies, with the angle that France's coasts would be unprotected without the Royal Navy, and that this was only the case because of previous Anglo-French agreements. This argument, proposed by interventionists in the days before, and proclaimed in a statement by Paul Cambon the day before, seems to have had its effect on Grey. In the 1912 Anglo-French Naval Convention, France had left its northern coasts undefended against Germany with the understanding implicit within the signed agreement that Britain would undertake the responsibility of ensuring French security thereafter. Non-interventionists had back then insisted that the engagement was not based on any agreement to cooperate during wartime, but such a declaration was proven bogus on the 2nd of August, since what other reason would England and France have for demarking zones of naval influence if it was not for the sake of mutual military protection and insurance during wartime? This was beginning to seem clear to the non-interventionists before the recess was called for lunch today, so Gray decided he had to test the waters himself and find a way to either make or break the cabinet. He argued that, If the channel is closed against Germany, it is in favour of France, and we cannot take half measures, either we must declare ourselves neutral or in it. Before the stomachs began rumbling and everyone's tempers became even shorter, the effort was made to search for a compromise within the cabinet. The head of the non-interventionists admitted that we owed it to France. In other words, accepting the basis for the moral argument, and this gave Gray his window. He gained approval for the following message to be sent to Paul Cambon. If the German fleet comes into the Channel or through the North Sea to undertake any hostile acts against French coasts or shipping, the British fleet will give it all the protection in its power. Though initially the statement seemed conditional enough to allow the break for lunch, the debate over food soon dug up some concerning facts for those opposed to intervention. Although the statement seemed simple enough, since Germany would again have to attack to break Britain's established laws, it betrayed the simple fact that of course Germany would send its navy against France's undefended coasts, and of course in the event of war she would have to take all measures to undermine the enemy's security, including attacking her shipping and coasts. One British MP present at the government meeting, John Burns, the head of the Board of Trade, one of the most ardent non-interventionists in the Liberal government, argued that the statement was neither more nor less a challenge to Germany, tantamount to a declaration of war against her. 
Even Cambon, now surely in a heap of relief after the previous jerky days, was able to note that, In truth, a great country does not wage war by halves. Once it has decided to fight the war at sea, it will necessarily be led into fighting on land as well. This latter fact began to sink in, so that by 6pm when the cabinet met again, it appeared as though the government's non-interventionists were more determined than ever to remain aloof from the continent. Gray confronted one Liberal MP when the meeting reconvened, and asked him point-blank what Britain should do if Germany invaded Belgium. The result was the revealing reply, She won't do it! I don't suppose she will, Gray said, but supposing she does, she won't do it came the reply again. There was much for the government to be focusing their attentions on. Ireland remained high in everyone's minds, and even the Prime Minister Asquith told the German ambassador after the break for lunch that, no matter what happened in Belgium, we had no desire to intervene. Yet the tide seemed to be flowing in Gray's direction, to the extent that he felt brave enough to press for armed intervention in the event that Belgium's sovereignty was sufficiently violated. Churchill, interestingly, made a point of noting that it had to be a substantial violation, rather than an innocent German breeze through the south of Belgium territory. Interesting also was Asquith's assertion that Britain could not be more Belgian than the Belgians. In other words, if Belgium did not resist a German all-out invasion, Britain was not going to either. Though this was not directly stated, it gave the non-interventionists some pause for thought. Yet the struggle for Grey remained. The Triple Entente was a terrible mistake, claimed leading non-interventionist Sir John Simon. Why should we support a country like Russia? When Grey warned that France would be overwhelmed if Britain refrained from getting involved, David Lloyd George retorted, How will you feel if we see Germany overrun and annihilated by Russia? When Cabinet broke up for the meeting, opinion was still undecided. Gray and Cambon could take solace in the fact that progress had been made, but the question of British belligerence was still far from certain. Fortunately for Gray and Cambon, the disastrous diplomacy of Germany was soon to do much of the work for them. En route to the Belgian Foreign Ministry was Germany's ambassador to Belgium, holding in his hands the document he had just removed from its previously sealed envelope on Bethmann's orders. It was an ultimatum. There was no mistaking it. The German statesman knew what he was about to hand over. It was a document of strategic necessity, as Maltke had claimed to Bethmann, because without the complicity of the Belgian government, German troops could not cross their territory to engage with France, and only through an agreement of some kind could Belgium be pacified and Britain appeased. Many in Berlin actually expected the ultimatum to be accepted. It had, in fact, been written up on the 26th of July, Remarkable, considering that Germany only mobilised on the 31st, but demonstrative of German military attitudes towards its own strategic goals. The text of the ultimatum opened with a strange argument, by reasoning that a French attack through Belgium was imminent, and that the German government would thus view the issue with the deepest regret if Belgium regarded as an act of hostility against herself, the fact that the measures of Germany's opponents forced Germany, for her own protection, to enter Belgian territory. In other words, the ultimatum blamed German strategy on the threat Germany's enemy posed to Belgium's security. The text after this seemed reasonable to some degree, 
Germany would guarantee all Belgian territory and possessions, would pay a cash indemnity for any damage caused, and would then evacuate immediately once hostilities had ceased. If Belgium went along with this, then... The friendly ties that bind these two neighbouring states would grow stronger and more enduring. Bethmann had originally wanted to place an article about Germany granting some of its war spoils to Belgium from France, possibly from Africa, but this was deleted from the ultimatum at the last minute, since it was anticipated, rightly, that it would antagonise British opinion. The final point, however, was what made the text an ultimatum. It noted that if Belgium opposed Germany, then... Germany would, to her regret, be compelled to consider Belgium her enemy. Another last-minute change had been the time limit. It was to expire at 8am the next morning, 12 hours after it had been delivered, rather than the original 24, as had been planned. This was the work of the now-strapped-for-time Moltke, who insisted that time was too valuable at this stage to waste here. Yet, perhaps a little more delicacy would have made the entire situation less indigestible to foreign opinion. Or perhaps Germany had simply committed diplomatic suicide the moment she issued it anyway. It provided the Belgian King Albert the chance to rally his people towards the flag, and portray Germany as the fiend of the civilised world that had shattered the peace. It wasn't the first portrayal of this kind, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. The act of presenting Belgium with such a document that nobody could have expected Brussels to accept, except apparently the Germans themselves, was to have the effect of wiping the state clean of all that had just happened. It didn't matter that Russia had mobilised first, that Germany had mobilised last, or that Sergei Sazanov had initiated Russia's period preparatory to war on the 25th of July. It didn't matter that the Franco-Russian Entente had effectively surrounded Germany with threatening mobilisations in the days before and forced her to respond in kind. It didn't matter that Britain was horrendously out of the loop and believed the situation to be such on the 2nd of August that Russia and France were acting defensively against the Austro-German determination to fracture the peace and unleash a continental war. It didn't matter that Wilhelm had tried desperately to maintain the peace and had become so depressed since learning of Gray's falsifications that he had barely met with anyone on the 2nd of August. It didn't matter because nobody outside of Berlin or Vienna saw it. Indeed, for over a generation, no historians would see it either. The truth, that Germany had reacted to its rivals' moves, and in the end, its crimes were that of creating disasters that would cause its diplomacy, its historical image, and Europe's opinion of it at the time, to die a thousand deaths impaled in the policy disaster that was an ultimatum to Belgium. The only issue, as Grey had made clear, that he seemed able to elicit a British reaction to. The following morning would show just how wrong Berlin's entire process had been. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.